Chapter 9 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C.M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 9 Reconciliations. While the sisters laid off bonnets and shawls in the guest chamber, it came over Aunt Hannah that she had a duty to perform which is never a pleasant one. It was not an easy task to make confession of wrong to Hepsy. She always took on such an injured, self-righteous air, which made one feel almost sorry at having humbled oneself. It was especially hard for Mrs. Adams, because it was so many years since she had had differences with anybody. She had almost forgotten the language of apology. She was one to do it, though, if she went through fire in the process. Hepsy, she began, while she folded her shawl with exactness, I needn't have been so short with you the other night. I had no right to get angry and I'm sorry for it, but it upset me a little when you talked about my selling the farm. I suppose I set too much by the old place. Huh, I should think so, replied Hepsy, a look of unmistakable triumph on her face. I'm glad the sermon took effect on you so quick, telling your own sister to get out of your house. You're mistaken in that, Hepsy, Mrs. Adams went on, controlling voice and face, lest the effort at reconciliation should be the occasion of a fresh quarrel. I said you could go if you were not pleased, but I needn't have said that, and wouldn't, if I'd not been a little provoked, and I want you to know that my insisting on the window being left open was not because I was stubborn or selfish. I knew you could shut your door if you felt the wind, but I believe it necessary to health to have fresh air in the sleeping room, and for my part I can't do without it. Fiddlesticks, said Hepsy. We can have slats nailed across if you are afraid the even voice went on, determined to gain a victory over itself this time. Well, I'll see. Maybe I'll go back since you felt so bad about it as to hitch right up and go after me, Hepsy said complacently, and Hannah had the grace to be silent. Downstairs, another reconciliation was in progress, but the process was different. John was kindling a fire in the kitchen. Mattie had just come downstairs, her church dress changed for a gingham. She was on her dignity. John saw that at once. She did not come to him and tell him that that was the very best sermon he had ever preached. He came over to where Mattie stood when he had got the fire crackling and the tea kettle on. She was cutting cold corned beef into thin pink slices. Shall I do that for you? he asked, but his offer was coldly declined. After standing in silence a minute, John said, roguishly, I'll forgive you. This was a jocose way he had adopted of asking pardon after some slight tiff. Mattie usually met it with a laugh and a kiss, and that was the end of the trouble. But today's grievance was too great to admit of being disposed of in any such trifling matter. His wife did not answer. She only looked at him with eyes that he knew had shed tears. "'Did I break him heart?' John asked in a low, tender voice, such as might melt the heart of a stone. Her head just reached to his breast." He pulled it down, though it made a feeble resistance, smoothed the brown hair, while the same deep, tender voice murmured, Mattie, dear, I ought not to have spoken so. I acted like a bear. I'm very sorry, and I might have waited just a minute more for you to go to church with me. Poor little wife had so much work. Ah, that was royal reparation, and met with royal forgiveness as well. The storm was over, and these two loving hearts flowed on again as one. Fortunate beings, who had learned one of the secrets of happiness in married life, 
not to allow hours and days of gloom and alienation to pass because they were too proud to speak the word forgive. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It must have been written more especially for young husbands and wives. You didn't let your bread get light enough, did you, Martha? Aunt Hepsy said, as she helped herself to a slice. Poor Martha flushed at having attention called to the one thing on the table that was not excellent. Aunt Hannah hastened to remark that the corned beef was delicious, cooked just right, and then she engaged John in a tide of talk about his old pastor and the church at home. After dinner, Aunt Hannah tied on a large apron she had brought with her and helped Mattie to do up the work. Her experienced eye took in little details about kitchen and pantry and rejoiced in them. Everything was orderly and neat. The elements of a good housekeeper were there without doubt. She was especially pleased to notice that the dishpans were clean and dry, the towels washed out and hung in the air to dry, and the dishcloth, humble instrument though it was, but an unerring test of neatness, nevertheless, was sweet and white and dry, though almost worn out. Then there were no cluttered corners where dust and disorder reigned. Aunt Hannah was pleased. She nodded her head to herself and said, She'll do. John went to his study, Aunt Hepsy to take a nap, while Aunt Hannah and Mattie had a long, quiet talk, helpful to the younger woman and refreshing to the spirits of both. John, said Aunt Hannah the next morning, when they happened to be left alone, I want you to let Martha go home with me for a couple of weeks, at least. She needs a change. I don't know how long Hepsy intends to stay, but she is perfectly able to keep house for you two, and I don't think Martha is strong enough in this spring weather to have company. She looks pale, and of course she has a good deal of work to do she isn't used to. Not hard work, but it tires her, just because she isn't accustomed to it. John took alarm at once. Mattie pale? Doing work she's not accustomed to, and he had meant to guard her so carefully. He had forgotten that she had been tenderly reared. What selfishness. I didn't know she was frail, he said. She needs a servant. I must see about it. Servant? said Aunt Hannah. Why, John, when did you go calling help servants? Well, she doesn't need a servant, then, and she isn't frail. She is healthier than most of them, thanks to her sensible mother, who wouldn't let her lace herself to death. Martha wouldn't want to be bothered with a girl, very likely, but she needs looking after that she doesn't take extra burdens upon herself and overdo. I suppose when you want to invite a brother minister you give Martha notice beforehand if you can, and insist on her having a woman that day to help her. It is these unexpected extras that break one's back. You ought to have a woman once a week, too, to clean up. People brought up in a city are not in the habit of doing such work. You've got a jewel in your wife, John. See to it that you take care of her. Don't let meddlesome women bother her and saddle her with all the work of the church. It's best to start out in the right way. Of course, she will help all she can, but they might as well understand that she doesn't belong to the parish as if they had bought her and paid for her. She has spirit enough to take care of herself if you'll let her, and she won't be imprudent either. Don't be so afraid of offending that you give up your self-respect. Some folks need to be rebuked. Now, the idea of those two women getting up that frightful bonnet and giving it to her because they didn't think hers was suitable, it ought to have been sent straight back to them, I believe in doing the things that make for peace, but when women get to meddling like that, it is a little too much, and they need a lesson. Martha's own bonnet looks like a little dove, and she ought not to wear that old green calabash. Well, Aunt Hannah, 
I don't know, John said, as he walked up and down. That green bonnet is as perplexing a problem as any that can be found in Euclid. What if Mrs. Pryor and Mrs. Prynne are so offended because of her refusing to wear it, that they leave the church and raise a breeze? You know Paul says we are to be all things to all men. Yes, but not to all women, Aunt Anna said, a twinkle in her eye. A man could never think half of the things that a meddlesome woman can. I don't believe Paul himself would have thought it his duty to wear a bushel basket on his head when he went up to the synagogue, even if a couple of foolish women had ordered him to. Humility is one thing, and getting down into the dust to be walked over is another, and not required even of a Christian, according to my way of thinking. But just yield once to meddling with your affairs, and you'll have them trying to rule you in everything. Ordering about the cut of your coats, and what you shall have for dinner, there'll be no end to it. Why, Aunt Hannah, John said, surprised and amused, I thought you were one of the meekest of saints, and here you are giving counsel the very opposite of what I supposed you would. You don't understand me, that's all, Aunt Hannah said. I'd do anything, or wear anything, that would help anybody, but to encourage such a spirit as this is wrong. I don't mean that you are to say sharp things, or treat them unkindly, but just go calmly on your way, managing your own affairs like any self-respecting man and woman. You know Paul speaks very plainly about busybodies. Now, who is to check the meddlesome spirit of those two busybodies in your church if their minister doesn't? You won't always stay here. The next minister's wife will have a present of their cast-off mutton-leg sleeves, too, and have to endure their impertinent interference if they are not taught better. And so they will go on to the end, pelting the heads of the long line of my successors with green bonnets, laughed John. I want you to tell Martha she must go home with me, Aunt Hannah said again. She will not, unless you urge it, and you must ask your Aunt Hepsy if she will keep house for you a while. She'll like it if you ask her, and she will likely get tired of it and be ready to come home by the time Martha's visit is over. John says I am to go home with you and stay a whole fortnight, Mattie said, putting her arms around Aunt Hannah's neck as she met her on the stairs. Is that true? How good you are! I do love to get out in the country in the spring, of all times. If John could only go, too, but he can't. I don't like to leave him so long, although for one reason I'm glad he isn't going, because I want you to teach me to make bread, Aunt Hannah. Will you? Dropping her voice to a whisper. Aunt Hannah and Mattie took an early start next morning, John carefully examining the axles, wheels, and harness, the last thing, to see that all was right, and giving various injunctions and warnings. Hear the boy, said Aunt Hannah, gathering up the reins. I've jogged about the country for years, and I never knew him to display the least anxiety before. What a difference it makes to have this stranger along that two years ago he hadn't laid eyes on. Aunt Hannah did not get the full benefit of the look those two bestowed on each other then. She was leaning over to tuck Mattie's dress away from the wheel. It stayed with them, though, through the days of separation. Aunt Hepsy put in a last sting as they drove away. "'You'll take good care of John, Aunt Hepsy, won't you?' said Mattie. "'Yes,' was the answer. "'I'll make him some nice bread, salt rising, and I'll put the house all to rights. Sweep down the cobwebs, you know,' she said, with a grim smile. Aunt Hannah was a poetical old woman. She picked up a bit of beauty wherever it could be found, whether it was a bright-winged bird— a patch of moss on a stone, or a fair young face. 
She turned purposefully now and looked at Mattie, because she liked to see the peach-blossom color leap into the rounded cheek, and her brown eyes take on a troubled look like a child's. Aunt Hannah laughed. "'My dear,' she said, "'don't let that trouble you any more than what that bird is saying.' pointing with her whip to an ambitious little bird who was screaming at the top of his shrill voice. Aunt Hepsy doesn't mean half as bad as she says. She just lets out the first thing that comes into her head. Didn't you ever notice how she will say something that sounds real hateful, and the next minute she seems to be in good humor? But the bread is horrible, said poor Mattie. And, Aunt Hannah, there's a big cobweb in the dining room. I never think of it only Sundays and after I've gone to bed— I don't know why it is, but I can't remember cobwebs. I want you to know that my mother tried to train me to be neat. Of course she did, said Aunt Hannah, and you are neat. Don't you worry. Young housekeepers can't think of everything at first. Just you drop your bread and your cobwebs and worries of all sorts now, and enjoy this wonderful spring morning. Such a dear old auntie, Mattie thought, as she leaned back and breathed a sigh of relief. Then, starting up eagerly, said, Look at those wild violets, whole banks of them. How perfectly lovely. I didn't know they grew so near the village. We haven't been out in the country since the spring opened. I should think you'd take a walk out as far as this, you and John, and hunt up the wildflowers. Why, we have no time, Aunt Hannah, actually. It seems as if the housework and the study and the meetings and the calls take every scrap. Poor child, she is so young for all these burdens, mused Aunt Hannah, and then she fell to forecasting the years, if long years there should be, for this young life by her side, feeling weary herself as the probable trials and crosses and griefs mapped themselves out before her. None of them appeared in her next remark, though, as she said, If I were young again, I should try to spend at least a few hours a week amongst plants and birds and trees, learning all that God has for me to know in this book. We shut ourselves in too much. I should like it above all things, said Mattie. I've sometimes wished we had some robins and squirrels for parishioners. I would cultivate their acquaintance. See that beautiful yellow bird? I never saw such a bright one. Oh, stop a minute here, Aunt Hannah, won't you, and let us look? It was a bit of woods they were passing through. A log bridge spanned the little winding brook that tinkled and gurgled over the stones, and then lost itself between mossy tree trunks and grass banks. Gnarled limbs were decked in tender green, and delicate ferns were unfolding feathery patterns, while here and there a scarlet blossom swayed in the wind. The old woman and the young one gazed a moment in mute delight, taking in every small detail of the picture, while each pointed out the varied tints, the white stone shining through the water, the shadows, the network of branches overhead, and the cool sweetness of the lovely spot. Mattie began to repeat, half unconsciously, some lines from Whittier's psalm. The west winds blow, and, singing low, I hear the glad streams run. The windows of my soul I throw wide open to the sun. No longer forward nor behind I look in hope or fear, but, grateful, take the good I find, the best of now and here. Amen, said Aunt Hannah, smiling lovingly into the bright face. That's good doctrine. Don't you think it's strange that all this beauty is hidden away there? Mattie said as they drove on. 
There are people who would pay a large sum of money to have that little nook transferred to canvas. The strange part of it is that more people don't hunt up the first pictures God made without waiting to get them on canvas second-hand. But many of them, Aunt Hannah, are inaccessible. Think of all the beauty at the bottom of the ocean, the gems and corals and plants, and the flowers and birds and trees in vast forests that seem wasted. No eye has ever seen them. None but the eye of God. Don't you suppose he takes pleasure in it all? I never thought of that. But, of course, he must see it. And how can he help enjoying his own perfect work? I don't see how a lily could be fairer, or a rose sweeter, or the woods and mountains and sea grander, if man had never fallen. And that reminds me that I wanted you to meet Mrs. Van Cleve. I have such nice visits with her. She has some beautiful ideas about the world as it was before sin came into it. She thinks the curse did not extend to flowers, but that they are as beautiful as they ever were. She reads a great deal, and is so familiar with the older poets, Milton, Wordsworth, and Gray, that she makes me blush for my ignorance, and I've gone to reading them myself. "'You couldn't do better,' said Aunt Hannah. "'But I'm glad you have some nice people. I was afraid they were all priors and prins and pritchards.' "'Oh, Aunt Hannah, that is because I grumbled so much. Don't you think, John says, they are our three P's, and we need three P's to manage them, patience, perseverance, and prayer. But, really, we have some lovely people. There's Mrs. Dean, that pale little lady dressed in gray, who sat up front. She's a dear saint, with her heart in heaven. She really does live her profession. Mrs. Kendrick, too, is so good. She's the large, fine-looking lady with gray puffs. She's a perfect mother to us, always sending us things. Her character is lovely, too. She never speaks an unkind word of anybody. I covet such a name as that. The Hammonds live in the large brick house not far from the church. They are well off, but you would never know it except by the amount they give away. They're both as plain and humble as possible. Mrs. Swift is another good woman, and one of my intimate friends. She is Scotch, and so devout and faithful. She tells me long, pleasant stories in the quaintest fashion. Then there's an old couple by the name of Mills, who live out half a mile. They are both so nice, and they love us as if we were their own children. They are poor, and her fingers are all bent up with rheumatism, but at Christmas she made me a workbox, covered with chintz, with a pocket for thread and a place for needles. The sewing is in little, fine stitches. It's one of the most precious gifts I ever received. Oh, we have some perfectly royal people, and we love them dearly. I'm so thankful that I'm a minister's wife. I wouldn't change places with anybody else, not for anything. I tell John we'll just stay right there always and work and grow up with these people. Don't you think that is best? Aunt Hannah said, I guess so, rather absently. Her thoughts turned to her own pastor. There were murmurings in the air which threatened to separate him from them. She almost said, Poor child, don't be too sure of anything. Your John may be asked to leave at the end of another year. But she kept it to herself. She would not repress the enthusiasm of this earnest young wife. Then you enjoy your work, was all she did say. Oh, so much. I have a class of girls from the factory. I love them, and they love me. They meet with me one evening a week, besides Sabbath lesson. And all the young people seem interested. Oh, I love my work, and I should be perfectly happy in it, 
if just a few people could be weeded out, and if I could make splendid bread. I ought to be happy, if anybody, with such a good husband. John's the very best man in the world. I suppose so, said Aunt Hannah, smiling, while she unchecked Dolly that she might take a long drink of the limpid water that flowed into a mossy drinking trough by the roadside. End of section 9